Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Our first reading today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and it'll be up on the screen here. Uh, or you can find it in your pew Bible on page 58. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, all that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honour your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A second reading comes from Matthew 19, starting at verse 13 and going to the end of the chapter. Then little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went on his way. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to them, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, 
go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, Last week, uh, Dylan Alcott was announced as the new Australian of the year. Uh, Mr. Alcott, uh, as you may know, is a successful athlete. He's got Six Olympic medals to his name across not just one, but two different sports. Uh, He's also a philanthropist. He's a motivational speaker, a radio presenter. Uh, He's also a paraplegic. Uh, He's a worthy recipient of the honour of being Australian of the Year. I think in all kinds of ways, he's uh, an inspirational kind of character. uh, And um, I think, you know, it's a good choice. Uh, I want to read to you a little bit uh, of his acceptance speech uh, that he gave at the ceremony, I guess, or whatever you call it, where someone becomes Australian of the Year. Here's what Dylan Alcott said. I've been in a wheelchair my whole life. I was born with a tumour wrapped around my spinal cord that was cut out when I was only a couple of days old. I've known nothing but having a disability. And if I'm honest with you, I can't tell you how much I used to hate myself. I used to hate having a disability. I hated it so much. I hated being different and I didn't want to be here anymore. I really didn't. Whenever I turned on the TV or the radio or the newspaper, I never saw anybody like me. And whenever I did, it was a road safety ad where someone drink drives, has a car accident, and what's the next scene? Someone like me, in tears, because their life was over. And I thought to myself, that's not my life. But really, I believe that that was going to be my life. Uh, It's a searingly honest thing to say, isn't it? Uh, Dylan Olcott said to himself, that's not my life, what I see on the TV, someone whose life is over because they have a disability now. That's not my life. But deep down in his heart, he thought that's exactly what his life was going to be. He couldn't see any other possibility. There was no other possible future for him. But for Dylan Olcott, and not just because he's Australian of the Year, uh, things turned out very differently than what he had expected. For him, life has turned out to be more wonderful than he ever believed could be possible. Uh, I wonder what uh, you think about the possibilities for your own life. Uh, What are your dreams and expectations? 
You might feel uh, fairly sure, actually, about what lies ahead. You've got a vision of the future, something that at the moment is just a possibility, but one that you are walking towards with confidence. You'll get there. Or you might be someone who's kind of just given up, really, on your expectations uh, for the future possibilities of your life. You feel as if your life is pretty much on a set of railroad tracks. Actually, it's not deviating anywhere. It's going straight ahead, and I know exactly where it's going, and there's nothing I can do about it. It might be that if you're someone like that, there's not much point dwelling on the possibilities because you know they're never going to become realities. As someone famous once said, to dream is to be disappointed. What possibilities does your future hold? In this next section of Matthew 19 this week, we have two interactions with Jesus where people are engaging with precisely that issue. What is possible for my life? Firstly, Jesus meets a rich but seemingly kind of desperate young man. He knows that he doesn't have eternal life, and even with his great wealth, he senses that he's lacking something. He wants to know what it is, and he wants to know what the possibilities are for him going forward. Then Jesus has this conversation with the disciples, reflecting on that previous meeting, and they wonder aloud and ask Jesus what the future could possibly hold for them. We've got nothing left, they say. So what remains for us? What's going to happen? What's going to become of us? And in the middle of all this fretting about the future, Jesus says those frequently quoted, frequently misused words, with God all things are possible. You can have what it is that your heart most deeply longs for. You can enter into eternal life. God, Jesus says, has made it possible. And he has the power to break through every barrier that stands in the way of real, full life as God intended it. And he has the power to generate new and undreamed of possibilities for your life along the way. Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard people almost certainly misapply this in the wrong kinds of contexts. And so you may well be sitting there rolling your eyes, maybe maybe not externally, you're too polite for that, just rolling your eyes internally perhaps. Or it might be that actually you're sitting there and just kind of starting to roll through this, yes, yes, I know all the theological and, and practical caveats to what Jesus is saying. He can't really be saying what he's saying. We know he must be saying something else. Uh, but I want you, just, uh, just for a little while here, to reign in your cynicism. Uh, instead of assuming that Jesus can't possibly mean what he says, let's actually just assume that we can take him at his word, actually. We know what Jesus is like. We can take him at his word. And so, therefore, explore what the God with whom all things are possible might actually mean for your life. Because what Jesus actually does here in this passage is to show us the way into a life which is alive with fresh possibilities. First, and in many ways surprisingly, the children who are brought to Jesus teach us that dependency is the way into this life. Secondly, the rich young man who approaches Jesus and is forced to confront the barriers to his own life uh, learns what it is that might hold you back from that. And thirdly, the disciples learn what is possible for those who overcome those barriers and commit themselves to following Jesus' independence. And who would have thought uh, those three things, those three themes, give us our three points for this evening? You can see them on the screen there. Firstly, dependency. Secondly, barriers. And thirdly, possibilities. Point one, dependency. Uh, Now, I have a, a bombshell for you, and you guys don't know this as well as the morning congregation does, but you'll understand what I'm saying nonetheless. Bombshell. Kids are really annoying. You heard it here first. Kids are noisy. Kids ask irritating questions. They frequently smell bad and they interrupt important grown-up business. 
The disciples apparently knew this well, and so when a bunch of kids are brought to Jesus for him to bless them and pray for them, they essentially tell the parents to rack off. We've got more important things to do. That's not what Jesus thinks, is it? Jesus says to them, no, 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 let them come to me and don't get in their way. Jesus has heaps of times for, uh, time for kids. It, it seems there's a, a bunch of beautiful little moments where Jesus interacts with kids in the Gospels. Uh, he actually understands, I think, that what most of us know, even though sometimes it's hard to remember, that despite all the annoying things about kids, they're an incredible delight in all kinds of ways. He welcomes children in, which, of course, is part of the reason that we've commissioned our kids and youth leaders tonight, isn't it? He cares for kids, so we care for kids too. We want them to be a part of the life of our church, the life of God's people. But, of course, Jesus is saying more than that here. Verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. Why? For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. You see, Jesus is drawing our attention to the kids here because he wants to show us that something about what kids are like is characteristic of those to whom the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs. At the start of the previous chapter of Matthew, Jesus also speaks about children, and there he highlights particularly the humility of children. He says, unless you become humble like this child who he's hanging out with as he speaks, then you won't enter the kingdom. Uh, here, I think, Jesus is pointing us to something uh, related to that humility, but slightly nuanced, if you like. There's a hint of it right at the start of this scene in verse 13. We're told, then the little children were being brought to Jesus. You see, Jesus says, let the little kids come to me. But, of course, it's not quite true, is it, that the kids have come to him? No, they've been brought here by somebody else. They couldn't kind of do it just of their own accord. They don't just wander up to Jesus and say, hey, we want to enter into the kingdom or anything like that. They've been brought here. You see, it's the dependency of these kids that we're supposed to notice. They come to Jesus with nothing at all to offer him. In fact, if anything, they might detract, actually, from Jesus' experience of life. They have nothing to offer Jesus. The only thing that they can bring with them to Jesus is their need. They can't do anything for themselves. And Jesus says it's coming to him like this, in this kind of childlike, humble dependence. That's what marks out those to whom the kingdom belongs. But what does it actually mean to be someone to whom the kingdom belongs? There's all this talk in Matthew of the kingdom of heaven, in the other Gospels, the kingdom of God. Uh, And it's important just to note that it's not actually about a place. It's not about a place called heaven that that people are going to. When the scripture speaks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's talking about the, the rule of heaven, the rule of God. What's on view is God's promise to come to this broken world and to set everything right again, to establish justice and peace and so bring people into life in all its fullness, life as God always intended it to be, before sin and evil and death made a mess of it all. And so when Jesus later in this chapter talks about entering into life, entering into the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life, he's got that same thing on view, being ushered into life as God truly intended it to be, with God at the centre of life in such a way that the whole of life is shot through with his goodness and glory. How do you get that? I mean, you want that, right? That sounds pretty good. How do you get that? Jesus says, come to me with the humble dependence of a child, offering nothing, just ready to receive. The way to enter into life, you see, is dependency. And to be honest, for me at least, I might just be projecting, I don't know, it's kind of irksome. I don't want to be dependent. Isn't dependency actually what you're supposed to grow out of? You're not supposed to be a kid forever. You're supposed to become independent, aren't you? And look after your life for yourself. 
Yes, of course, that's true, right? And that's why we uh, rightly, uh, when we see a 30-something still living at home with his, maybe hers, but probably his parents, still letting mum do all the washing and dad pay all the bills, we suspect that there's some kind of maladjustment going on here. Of course you're supposed to grow up into an independent, fully rounded human being. But what Jesus is already hinting at here is that growing up, especially growing up in faith, growing up in the things of the Lord, will mean letting go of those dependencies which are actually just childish and unhelpful that you need to grow out of, while at the same time deepening our dependency on God, you see. In fact, the very next scene that Matthew recounts for us gives us an example of precisely this, through an example, really, of when it goes wrong. Point two, what are the barriers to entering into this kind of life? Uh, the second scene continues the theme of people coming to Jesus, uh, but in this scene, the person in question doesn't come with anything like the humble dependence, actually, that the children come to Jesus. Verse 16, Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Uh, so here's a young man, probably in his early 20s, who is in the process of learning for himself what it means to be a grown-up. He's taking responsibility for himself. He's letting go of the dependencies of childhood. He wants eternal life, so he's going to go and get it. Instead of coming to Jesus with nothing at all, he comes, you see, with an offer. He says, let me know what good thing you want me to do, and I'll do it. He's heard that Jesus is offering life, eternal life, life to the full, the life that God intended. And as a wealthy young man with his whole life stretching out before him, full of possibility and potential, He's confident that he can just pull off whatever it is that Jesus asked him to do. And so Jesus answers his question. Verse 17, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now this young man, he's come for a purpose. He wants to know what to do, right? So he kind of drills down. He wants to be really clear about what he's being asked to do. He presses Jesus on it. Which ones, he says. And so Jesus rattles off some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now it seems that this young man is starting to get a little confused, or maybe a little worried even. Because he kind of goes, all right, so I can tick those boxes. I've got those things under control, so what's next? Uh, ben read this really well for us before, I think. There's kind of almost a, a desperate edge to his next question. Verse 20, the young man said to him, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? In other words, Jesus, what more could you possibly want from me? I've, I've done the commandments thing. And so Jesus responds by just ratcheting it up even further, as Jesus is wont to do. Verse 21, he says, If you wish to be perfect... Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, what exactly is going on here? Uh, the answer lies in part in noticing uh, which commandments Jesus didn't quote here. Uh, we heard the version of the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus uh, read for us just before as well. Uh, and you might have noticed that, that these commandments that Jesus actually does um, uh, recite here in Matthew 19 come from kind of the back half, if you like. The commandments kind of fall into two halves, if you like. Stuff about God and our devotion to him. Stuff then about how we treat everyone else in the rest of our lives. Uh, here's what was left out of Jesus' list of commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. No other gods, no idols, uh, not taking the Lord's name in vain, ceasing from work on the Sabbath. 
Uh, it's not that hard to see, I think, that, that really when you kind of sum it up, what those four commandments are all about is God says, depend only on me. No other gods to try and save you. No idols to devote yourself to. No other name by which you may be saved. And actually, you should stop work sometimes on the Sabbath because it turns out that I'm the one who provides for you. You don't actually need to go out to work all the time. You can actually just say, you know what? God's got this. I can stop. Depend only on me. This young man, I'm sure, knew the commandments by heart, for sure, since he was a young boy. Not a chance that he didn't know what was going on. And so Jesus is suggesting to him here that he may well have kept all of those outwardly obvious commandments, and yet he's neglected the attitude of the heart toward God that really makes them genuine in the first place, the things that matter most. And the response to Jesus' words kind of just grimly underscores the accuracy of Jesus' assessment of what's going on for this young man. Verse 22, when the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Uh, you see, his wealth was his God, wasn't it? His, it was his idol. In his heart, his hope and happiness and all the possibilities before him, they were secured and guaranteed for him, not by God, but by his money. Uh, this uh, young, independent man was just as dependent, you see, as a helpless child in the end. But he was dependent on the wrong thing. Uh, Jesus challenges him to be fully dependent on God, to really treat God as God, but he can't let go of his dependence on his wealth. And it's a dead end. Jesus has plenty to say about the fact that actually wealth can't secure you. It could be taken away from you in a moment. To depend on wealth like this is an absolute dead end. And yet for this man, his wealth is a barrier to the possibility of the fullness of life as God intends it and offers it in Jesus. It's a heartbreaking note, really. I don't know if you noticed this as we read it. He went away grieving. He didn't just go, oh, well, that's fine, I've got my money. You see, it's not that this guy didn't want what Jesus was offering. He wanted what Jesus was offering. But he was unwilling to pay the cost. There's a failure of imagination, if you like, on one level. He simply can't imagine the possibility of a rich, full, beautiful life without his wealth. His wealth is, in fact, exactly what he's been depending on for precisely those things for all this time. But the cost of entering into true life, Jesus says, to him and to us, the cost of entering into true life is everything. You have to give up everything that your heart clings to, every dead-end dependency, and depend instead entirely on God. Uh, Jesus' reflection on this and the illustration he uses is worth noticing. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, it's not hard to understand what Jesus is saying here. There's nothing tricky at all. It's just it's plain ridiculous, right? Here you go. It's a little bit like this. What are you going to I mean, you can't. You, just, you can't do it, right? A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And in fact, even when they're not to scale with a really giant needle or a really tiny camel, it's hard to say, even, even, that, even that camel's not going to fit through that needle. It's ludicrous. Jesus says it can't happen. We should take serious note of this uh, because, you know, Jesus uses what I think is kind of a deliberately funny and absurd kind of illustration, but to make a very serious point. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about money actually far more than he talks about sex. It's not that sex doesn't matter. Of course, it matters greatly. 
but it's wealth that is held up as perhaps the greatest contender for an alternative God for people. At other times, Jesus even personifies wealth as a kind of demon, mammon, he calls it. To underscore that point, uh, this scene with this young man is actually the only time in the Gospels recorded for us that someone fails to respond to a direct call from Jesus to follow them. Jesus says to heaps of people in the Gospels, come, follow me. This is the only, only guy who says no. And it's because of the deep dependency of his heart on his wealth rather than on God. Now, this isn't just a problem for this young man, of course. Wouldn't it be great? It was just like, ah, oh, that guy, <laughs> shame for him. No, no, this is a problem for all of us, isn't it, at one level or another. Jesus doesn't command everyone he meets to sell everything and give to the poor, and that's precisely because Jesus knows that we don't all actually have exactly the same barriers in our hearts to depending on God as we must. But we all have some version of it. What might it be for you? You probably know, actually, to be honest. You probably sit there and go, I know what it is for me. What it is deep down that if Jesus said to me, you must give up that thing, I, just, I couldn't do it. It'd be almost impossible What is it that in your heart you trust to bring about the possibilities that you long for? Now, if you're not quite sure, actually, um, what it might be, uh, Jesus actually has some suggestions for you. He's helpful like that. Uh, They're broad suggestions, but I think quite useful. Uh, We hear them actually later on in his conversation with the disciples, uh, where he speaks about those who have left houses, family, and fields. And they kind of give us three kind of useful categories, I think, for interrogating our own hearts in this and thinking through what this all means for our own lives. Houses, family, and fields, all things that can be barriers to our dependence on God. Uh, Firstly, houses. Uh, Not homes, you notice. Uh, Jesus here says houses. Uh, We know that houses provide security and comfort in all kinds of ways, and my word, isn't that true for us in the inner west of Sydney, of all places? Uh, Houses, not just security and comfort for your own personal physical well-being, but for your financial well-being into the future as well. Uh, for many of us, the single largest asset you're ever, ever going to possess is a house. And for many of us, getting a foot into the door of the housing market is the way to security, isn't it? That's not an evil thing, of course. Neither Jesus nor the Bible says that there's any problem with, with the ownership of property. But if we're to take Jesus' word to us here seriously, we have to recognise that there are spiritual risks involved in this as well. In your heart, do the possibilities your future holds out to you depend on owning a house? Is that actually the goal around which everything else in your life revolves? Making sure you get into the housing market, making sure you get a house and then renovate it and all those kinds of things. If so, is there a risk that home ownership might actually have displaced dependency on God in your heart? Uh, Houses. Secondly, family. And not just family, but you can broaden that out, I think, to our, our relationships in general. Our relationships provide security of a different kind, of course, the security of knowing that whatever else happens, you are loved and accepted, and we need that. Human beings need that. We need to know that. But, of course, you can depend on your family and your other relationships in a way that competes with dependency on God too. Perhaps for you is that you always have to make sure that your friends and family are happy with you, that you never put a foot wrong with them. Maybe your life revolves around the quest to find someone to marry. That's really what it's all about for you, is doing whatever you can to find a partner. Or it could be that securing the best opportunities and education for your kids is what consumes you. Good relationships with family and friends, getting married, setting your kids up really well for their life. All worthy things, all things that actually bring honour to the Lord Jesus. But there are also things that can be idols for your heart. 
If they're what your heart is depending on for happiness and for a bright future, then they might well be a barrier to depending on God and therefore entering into the fullness of the life that he offers. Houses, family, fields. Uh, How many of you own fields, by the way? Has anyone just got a field hanging around? Anyone? Adam has a field, apparently. There you go. Probably don't own many fields unless you've actually bought some land to build a house on, right? Uh, fields, of course, in Jesus' day was all about um, economic productivity, actually. The, the more fields you had, the more you could grow to sustain yourself, and maybe if you were lucky, sell some of it as well. Uh, fields are a kind of proxy for livelihood, if you like. Uh, fields are where you would do your work. Fields are where you would make sure that your immediate needs were met. Uh, and so I wonder if fields here, actually, it's kind of transferred over into our language, right? The field that you work in, you know, you know that phrase? Uh, Fields, I think, can be a proxy for for livelihood and particularly for the work that we do to get it. Uh, Now, good work is God-honouring, of course, and we should all seek to allow the gospel to give shape and vitality to the work that God has given us uh, each of us to do. I mean, that's why at Christ Church Inner West, um, every now and then we run a year-long course called Citizens to help people do exactly that. How does the gospel shape my work? But you see, when work expands to such a a state that it um, directs and dictates the whole shape of your life and of your leisure and even of your relationships, it might just be that in your heart you're depending on your work to fulfil all the possibilities of your life. A quick test for you might be this. How often do you have to bail on family or friends because you're working long hours again? Or how often do you have to kind of just a little bit, not much, not heaps, how often do you have to just a little bit compromise your own values or resolutions in order to get ahead a little bit. Your work too, you see, a good gift from God, and yet it can be a barrier to dependence on God and so to entering into the fullness of the life that he offers. All these things are good things, don't hear me wrong. I love all these things. All these things are great. Gifts from God. And yet they can all, if they get into the wrong spot in your heart, Function as idols, as alternative gods, as barriers to the dependency that Jesus here tells us is necessary to enter into the life of the kingdom. They're dead-end dependencies, you see. They they can't get you what it is that Jesus offers. And if we depend on them, then eventually we'll end up grieving like this young man as he walks away from Jesus. But if we depend on God, we'll find ourselves invited into a life that is alive with fresh possibilities, you see. That's what you want. That's what Jesus holds out to us here. And so how can you get there? What can actually break you out of your dead-end dependency on all kinds of other things? And so open your heart up to the wonderful possibilities of the life that God offers through Jesus. Point three, possibilities. We're going to draw to a close here. What possibilities does your future hold? That's That's what we asked before. What possibilities does your future hold? Whether you're confident or cynical about the future, Jesus has a promise for us here. Let me read it for you again, verse 25. When the disciples heard Jesus' reflection on his interaction with this young man, they were greatly astounded and said, then who can be saved? Who can enter into this life? Who can this be possible for? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. I mean, huge if true, right? Seriously. And Jesus wants us to pay attention to this. Uh, Notice the the, uh, cool little detail that Matthew records for us there. Jesus looked at them. Uh, The Greek word for looked there means uh, something like to gaze in the face. He's eyeballing them. He wants to make sure that they're looking 
and that they hear what he says because it matters. With God, all things are possible. He wants us absolutely not to miss just how serious he is about this promise. It's possible, Jesus says, to have full and abundant life. The life that God offered and intended from the very beginning. Humanly, it's impossible. We're too wrapped up in our own dead-end dependencies that giving up everything, it's just a bridge too far for many of us, for all of us. But God, Jesus says, makes it possible. What exactly is it that he makes possible? God has the power, you see, to make possibilities that we've never even dreamed of become reality for us. Uh, Dylan Olcott, who we spoke about earlier on, uh, has something to teach us here, I think. As far as I know, uh, Mr. Olcott isn't a follower of Jesus, but uh, there's a kind of resonance with the shape of his life in some ways, uh, with the life that Jesus holds out to his followers, I think. Uh, We heard earlier from his uh, speech last week uh, how he used to hate his disability, and he could only see one possibility for his life. This is where it's all going. Uh, But listen to what he said just a little later in his speech. He said these words. I love my disability. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. It really is, and I'm so thankful for the life that I get to live. What a remarkable thing to say. My disability is the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm so thankful for the life that I get to live. Now, in his speech, Mr. Alcott was quick to acknowledge, and rightly so, that 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 isn't the experience of everyone with a disability, right? And Christians, of course, as well, we want to be careful to remember that that disability is a a part of the way that sin and evil have broken into God's good world, something that uh, in the the new creation, the the, um, time of renewal, as Jesus talks about it, will be be done away with, will be be fixed, if you like. Uh, And yet it's one particularly intense experience of the brokenness that we all have in our own lives. And you see, for this man, even through those experiences, new possibilities have emerged for him. So it is, you see, with the followers of Jesus. Peter and the disciples tell Jesus that they've done pretty much exactly what he asked the rich young man to do. Have they? I don't know. It's not entirely clear. But they feel like they've done something substantial and significant. Look, Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What will we then have? Jesus' response is this, verse 29. You will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. A hundredfold. I mean, giving up everything is a high cost, but a hundred times everything, that's a pretty big prize. To abandon every dearly held dependency, every dream and ambition, to leave behind all the possibilities that your heart was set on and instead throw your lot in with Jesus, that's big. But the benefits, Jesus says, far outweigh the costs. Because even when it's hard, even when you have less than you might have had before, there will be new possibilities that you hadn't even dreamed of out of all proportion to what you might have had to give away. We find, actually, those, uh, those new possibilities in precisely the same places that can, we can be most tempted to find our idols, in houses, in family, in work and livelihood. And so you see, Jesus' promise here is that followers of Jesus are going to find that having left brothers and sisters, they gain unexpectedly rich and beautiful new sibling relationships. That having left fathers and mothers, they gain the wisdom and gentle care of older members in their Christian community. That having left children, perhaps not even having children of their own at all, they gain opportunities to play a real role in growing others up into the Lord, just like the kids' ministry leaders who we've commissioned this evening. Followers of Jesus will also find that having given up houses 
and whatever other forms of security they might have. They, they gain not just more houses, but homes, as their needs and longings are met in the love and care of a new family who's always ready to welcome them in. Followers of Jesus will find that having given up fields, they gain actually new motivation for their work and new perspectives on what it is that God has prepared for them in advance to do and new opportunities to give themselves in loving service to one another. A life alive, you see, with fresh possibilities. That's what Jesus offers to us if we come to him in humble dependence. And more often than not, those possibilities are going to be even better, actually, than the dreams that we've had for our own future. Perhaps even possibilities that come through costly sacrifice and genuine suffering that perhaps we never would have chosen for ourselves, and yet leading to deeper and richer joys and blessings than you might ever have dared to dream of. God, you see, is the one who makes it possible. To give up everything and depend on him will lead you into a life alive with fresh possibilities. And he makes it possible by doing precisely what is humanly impossible, doesn't he? He makes it possible by sending his son, Jesus, the one who possesses everything that belongs to his father, the one who's the very source of life itself and who paid the cost that we could never pay. He left his father, he left behind the wealth of heaven, he left the comfort of his heavenly home, he gave his very life. At the cross, you see, Jesus was crushed by the weight of all of those things that we can't let go of. All of our dead-end dependencies have met their death in him. And so we can let go because he's broken every barrier. He gave everything for us so that in everything we might depend on him. And the more we do, you see, the more we'll see fresh possibilities bursting forth even from the grave receiving his heavenly treasures in our empty hands and hearts as we wait with eager longing for the renewal of all things that has already begun in the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. I don't know what the blessings are going to be for you, specifically, and Jesus doesn't tell you here either. I don't know exactly what the possibilities are that are going to open up for you as you give everything to follow the Lord Jesus. But Jesus tells us, and we can trust his word, the blessings outweigh the costs a hundredfold and more. And so who wouldn't want to follow him? Let's pray that God would help us to have hearts that are devoted to him like this. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are so deeply aware of all the things that compete in our hearts for depending on you. All those things that we think are going to get us through the hardships, all those things that we think are going to make our life turn out the way we want in the end. There's a lot of them and they're hard to get rid of a lot of the time. And yet, Father, we know that the way into the life that you offer is total dependence on the Lord Jesus, to give ourselves fully to him, to love and receive those gifts of your creation, but to treat them in such a way that actually they have no hold on us. They're good gifts from you, our Father, and yet they're not where our hearts are set. Father, we need your help to do this. Jesus says it's humanly impossible, and so we need your spirit at work in our hearts. And what we need is for you to remind us and show us again and again and again that Jesus has given everything so that we might in everything depend on him and so that we might in this life and the age to come inherit eternal life, that we might have everything that he has. So, Father, drive that deep into our hearts, the way that he's let our own dead-end dependencies come crashing down on him so that we might be free to live a life with fresh possibilities. Show us what they are, Father. Help us to walk into them by your Spirit always reminding us that you have broken the barrier for us in the Lord Jesus.
We pray these things in the power of your spirit for your honour and glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.